You're listening to devpath.fm, the podcast about career development for software engineers. Join the conversation at www.devpath.fm or on Twitter at devpathfm. Hey everybody, I'm here with Jessica Kerr and Jessica is a software engineer. Um, I know about her because she's a blogger and makes a lot of uh, content like podcasts and videos. Jessica, you want to introduce yourself and talk about your day job? Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, so I'm Jessica Kerr, better known as Jessitron. And my day job, I work at Atomist, which is a startup. And um, we work on development automation, like tools for development automation, which is like super meta, uh, including delivery automation, but generally kind of like how do you manage code once it's stretching across hundreds of repositories? And like, as an organization, you need to have like some idea of what's going on in your org, what what applications are still out there, uh, whether they're meeting your current security standards, and also to like bring them up to standards. Um, so we ha- we um, we have tools like for looking at code across the repositories. Uh, you can write little functions that like go, give, given um, a directory with code in it, go figure out what version of this thing is it on. And uh, does it have the right annotations that we want in this org? Of course we write some, but, but you can write your own. And then you can get those ideas and then you can like apply pull requests org-wide um, and auto-merge them if you want to. Um, so that kind of thing. And then it also applies to software delivery because if you have hundreds of repositories, no, you really don't need to be configuring each one in Jenkins. And actually, you don't need to have your code scattered in hundreds of YAML files. So we have a diff- different way of looking at that, um, which is fun. But I, I love it because uh, my the domain that I work in is the domain of software development, like at an abstract level. And, and I really think that especially in enterprises, architects and developer platform teams, um, they have to look at code at an abstract level, uh, code and running software. And, 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 you know, we can't do that by hand. We need to write code to do it. And we need to not be writing our, everybody writing their own scripts to clone all the repositories, to interact with Slack, to interact with GitHub and Bitbucket and do all these things. Uh, Yes, we kind of, uh, provide the common tools for that. And as you can tell, I think it's a really interesting domain to work in. Kind of the the question I like to start off with, because I want to get from where you mm-hmm. started to where you are now, um, is, is really what, what your first experience in tech was. And if you can recall, what was the first project you were paid to write code for? Ooh. Oh, um, yeah, actually, I just, uh, I just t- told that story at VelocityConf the other day, last month. Um, cause I did this talk about from problems to products, like from solving the problems we're told to solve as software developers and, and implementing requirements that someone else hands us to the level I'm at now, which is having to figure out for myself, what's the most important thing uh, to work on and, and how that affects the people uh, who benefit from our software. Um, but but I got into tech. I was really lucky. I majored in physics in college, not for like great love of the field, but it sounded interesting. 
And um, an, a friend of my aunt's got me a summer internship at Federal Express, and I got to write code for that, and it was fun, and it was easy, and I could go home at 5.30 and not have any homework, so I thought it was great. Compared to physics, you'd have to go further into academia mm-hmm. and stuff. Uh, yeah, and this was like 1999 when I graduated, which was perfect because there were just zillions of programming jobs. So I got one. And um, I wrote, uh, I worked in a provisioning system for telecom. So like a cellular provider, uh, when the customer service rep wants to activate a phone, that would come through our system and we'd talk to the network switches and turn on service. Now you share a lot of your opinions online in the form of blog posts or Twitter or whatever. How did you go from someone who got into programming because you thought it was cool and fun um, and there were jobs available to someone that had enough opinions on it to mentor others? Mm. Mentor is a strong word. Influence, maybe. Corrupt. Um, uh, I I tell the story a lot, but how I got into speaking was... um, one of my favorite conference speakers, the only conference I had ever been to was Snowfluff, uh, this jo- traveling Java conference that came to St. Louis every year. And uh, one of my favorite speakers from that, his name is Ted Neward, was speaking at our user group. And I went to see him and then I asked him afterward, um, just have a beer. And some of us went out for beer and Ted asked me, have you ever thought about speaking? And I said, well, no, because I don't I don't, I'm not an expert in anything. And he was like, oh, you don't have, you don't have to be an expert. You just have to know enough to talk for an hour. And I was like, oh, oh, I can do that. I'm good at learning stuff. Uh, so once I decided I wanted to speak at conferences, then he also started handing me like um, article opportunities, like people were asking him to do stuff for free. And he was like, uh, no, <laughs> but, <laughs> but maybe I know someone who would. Um, and that, that, got me into like what is actually going on in our field. I was an enterprise Java developer before that. And I started learning about functional programming. Um, I did a little bit of mobile development uh, just to learn stuff and and talk about it and write about it. And, and I've been hooked since. As soon as I started like really studying software, this industry is fascinating and it is growing in so many directions and and we're really learning a ton in this industry and not just about programs we're learning about systems and that stuff that we learn about systems applies to the world much more broadly and 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 I think that we're learning really important things about systems like like agile for example like lowercase a original <laughs> sort of agile philosophy um yeah yeah I mean, other other parts of the world have picked that up besides just software and been like, hey, maybe we want to work in teams that actually talk to each other and uh, and and work closely together and retrospect on how we're working and how we could improve that. So do you think you made a conscious decision to keep speaking and writing to kind of boost your profile and build a career? Or was it just something that you felt inclined to do. Oh no, it's, it's intrinsic value. It, I mean, there's there some of that intrinsic value comes from the the people who tell me, "Hey, this was helpful." That that's really fun, but I love the learning for its own sake. 
and and then the expression of that in tweets, in blog posts, in in videos uh, feels really good. And I've, I've observed over time that uh, that the people actually find it useful. My breakout talk was was Get Happens. Um, where I explained the the concepts behind Git and the vocabulary so that you could actually hope to read the man pages and figure out what was going on um, in like 45 minutes. And that was, that's been helpful to so many people. Um, and, and as a result, I keep getting opportunities. So it's not so much a matter of like consciously deciding I'm going to profile, blah, blah. I didn't have to do that. Um, once I started getting out there, people brought the opportunities to me. And I just said, yes. Yeah. I was going to ask about that. It seems like just based on that kind of short introduction that you're someone who has had a lot of opportunities to go up and speak and share your mind. But I, I know from the outside, typically people like to say, Oh, like you've been given a lot of opportunities or a lot of opportunities came to you. But I also know that's almost never true. People go out and find those opportunities um, or, or something that you're doing sets you up for them. So is there something that you could identify that that maybe you did to attract those opportunities to yourself? Uh, blogging is really helpful. I've I've learned I've I've learned that uh, writing has a much longer and therefore wider impact than a talk. So even though the the conference talks they feel like they're um, having a bigger impact because you get to see the people who are looking, they don't. Um, the writing does. So having a blog and being out there has made a huge difference. Um, and then a fun part is uh, once you are, especially speaking at conferences or tweeting, um, people bring information to me. You know, they come up and talk to me and tell me stories that are relevant to what I said. And then I've got more information. And that's super helpful. Um, so just like being friendly and wanting to hear people's stories. Um, that's, that's helped. Do you know when you went from what you would call a junior or an intermediate developer to being someone who can provide leadership? Can you identify that or has it been really gradual for you? Leadership. That's, that's a strong word. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I am someone who can provide leadership inspiration. I'm full of inspiration. Uh, but, but, but for me, the difference is a broadening of perspective. It's uh, thinking about more than just my piece of the system, thinking about more than the software, but also everyone who has to use it in the case of internal business software and what they're trying to accomplish and um, moving beyond getting the code right toward getting the system right or better. There is no right. There is only better. Um. So like I used to I used to get frustrated with the business people. We'd be in like requirements gathering meetings with them. And I'd ask about some corner case and they just didn't have an answer for me. And and I was like, well, we how how are we supposed to do it right if I don't know what right is? And I'm like being very insistent on on digging for that stuff. And now I realize, you know what? If that corner case comes up, let's just have a nice error message. You know, if I can't figure it out myself, because hopefully I can, because I, I know more about the business than just uh, what's written on this paper of requirements. Um, 
And if I can't, you know, make a, make a good error message because we, we really can't handle every single corner case. Um, so, so I feel like the career progression for me was the point where I stopped just, I stopped asking even for the instructions that I needed and started taking responsibility uh, for the decisions in collaboration with the business people. Um, but, but not acting like they needed to tell me every single corner of, uh, what it should do. It kind of sounds like you have, uh, an appreciation for software systems as opposed to just, uh, you know, an application. And Mm -hmm. based on that, I'm kind of wondering if there's an anecdote or something that helped you to change your perspective from just being someone who writes code, uh, in a C or a Java file to someone who, looks at systems and tries to analyze where they can be improved. Oh, mm. that has been really gradual. It helps to go to conferences and go to other people's talks and hear their stories. Um, it helps to talk to the other speakers um, and hear their stories. And then there's a lot of books that have taken me a long way. Um, Donna, Donella Meadows, Thinking in Systems was one of the first ones that I read that kind of uh, got me out of my box of thinking causality was linear. Um, Got me out of a reductionist uh, point of view. And then since then, Nora Bateson um, and and her father, Gregory Bateson, I read a lot of that. Um, And there's, there's... there's oodles. On Twitter today, we were talking about the book Software Development and Reality Construction. That's a beautiful one. I can't recommend everybody buy it. It's quite a tome and it's quite expensive. Um, it's like the conference proceedings from a conference of the same name in like 89 or something. And it's fascinating because even back then, we didn't have as much we could do about it back then. But even back then, we realized that when we create software, we are changing people's worlds. We're affecting their day-to-day lives, what they can do, what they can't do, what's easy and what's hard, um, what they know how to do, and uh, what they have to break the rules to accomplish. And this this is powerful. Uh, so that that book has done a lot to teach me that what I do really has impact on the world and I have the capability of thinking about that. It's not out of scope. You might have already answered this question, but I like to ask it. Um, Is there a specific personality trait or something about your mindset that you think makes you consistently good at writing software and thinking about systems? Mm, mm, Consistent is a strong word. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm very thoughtful about writing software. And sometimes being thoughtful about writing software means doing it badly uh, in the sense of this is a prototype. Um, I'm I'm not going to use uh, a ton of abstraction and um, check all the error cases and write property-based tests and stuff like that. Um, so, so that kind of like flexibility helps. Um, the, the context, like really looking at the context and understanding why am I doing this and 
what, because if you really understand why you can do that, you can make better decisions and software development is making decisions. That is our job. It's not typing. It's deciding what to type. That's so difficult. Uh, and the other one is curiosity. There's like this weekend I'm reading in the CSS specification. CSS is not my job. I just really need to make this one like web interface for our open source software, not totally suck. <laughs> and there, I don't have access to anyone who knows front end at Atomist. And so I have to, it's, it's me or nobody. And so, damn it, I'm going to learn this stuff. And, and I fought through it for long enough and now I'm actually digging into it. And that, that kind of like stubbornness of, yeah, I know this isn't my job, now, <laughs> but but I'm not just gonna sit here and act like uh, act like it's okay to just cut and paste without knowing stuff works mm-hmm. or knowing why it works. That's okay for a little while, and it's okay um, if if I if it if I can't get it to answer the question that I need it answered. But it's not okay indefinitely, and and damn it, I just, I want to know. I want to move this from magic to technology by building a foundation in my head. I think that's super valuable and and very underrated right now, especially in the world of startups, which I also work in. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can't know everything. You just can't. You have to you have to wait until you need to know it. Um, but but I do try to just go a little deeper every time I get to research something and spread that knowledge a little bit. And then finally on the weekends Sometimes it's just like, I'm digging. And and now I've like had, I have so many examples in my head, so many questions of why does CSS do this, that it's really satisfying to go to the source and answer some of those. Mm -hmm. So yeah, back to the the idea of consistency. Um, I I pretty much ask (laughs) everybody I interview to share any experiences they've had with imposter syndrome or something similar. Is that something that's like affected you at any point in your career? Not really. <laughs> Clearly, you're super passionate about what, what you do. So do you think that comes from that? Or is there some other reason that you feel like you've never had that experience? Um, I, I mean, I think it just comes out of my childhood. I mm-hmm. had a very happy childhood. And I one of my superpowers is is I generally feel like I belong where I am. And that will stave off imposter syndrome. I also am not afraid to ask stupid questions. And in my circumstances, that has worked. It doesn't work for everyone. Uh, some people get punished for asking too many questions, um, but I haven't. And, and and I've gotten a ton of benefit out of that. Yeah, that's incredibly valuable. I think I, I personally struggled with uh, feeling like I didn't belong for the first year of writing software. I always felt like I belong, but I have felt like I'm in over my head and I'm not accomplishing anything and I'm not helping. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that case, it also helped to ask for help. Well, and there's there's also a difference between those two uh, ideas. It's something that I have been exploring recently. And the thing that makes imposter syndrome different that I think a lot of people miss is this constant nagging feeling that someone's going to oust you. And I, like, I really like the use of that word oust. That someone's going mm. to reveal that you're lying to everybody and that you don't belong there. That that nagging sensation that that will happen 
it's impossible. And that creates a circular causality mm-hmm. because when you feel like that, then you feel like you need to hide any ignorance that you do have. And then you don't ask questions and then you belong less. You kind of described yourself as being someone who was like excited to, to listen and talk to others um, earlier when you were talking about uh, speaking and learning from the other speakers. How does that ability affect you in your day-to-day job? Because I know I, you kind of touched on hearing from others gave you more experience to build your own thoughts around, but just as a, as a day-to-day programmer, are, are you using that skill and, and how has that affected you? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, it's, it's a big part of caring about the whole system is finding out what's going on in the other part of the system, which means a lot of listening. Now I, I work remotely. Uh, so that happens over Slack, but I, I don't know, it doesn't happen enough. Um, I feel kind of isolated, but, uh, but our, our, our uh, team is pretty small still. And I go to too many conferences, but <laughs> But then at conferences, I get to listen and hear about what's going on in the industry as a whole, and that's relevant to my work. So I can bring that and and smear perspectives around, which is mm-hmm. super useful. Um, but the biggest thing is having a good understanding of why I'm doing what I'm doing, how it fits into the bigger picture, so that when something gets too hard, I can go back and say, okay, do we really need to bang through this or should we try another tack? And, um, and also I need to know what other people need to know. So if I change a part of the system, who needs to know about that? Who's going to be affected by it and vice versa, they need to know what I need to know. So those, those coordinations, if you don't do them, there's a big cost. If you, if you miss a coordination, um, and lose interpredictability, um, that you can, you can introduce, serious problems in, into your system and setbacks. Uh, if you do do them and you do them like friendly and sociably, then there's big benefits because uh, it, it kind of knits the team together and helps you share your common purpose. And, and that feels really good. How do you build and take advantage of that shared purpose? Mm, that's a good question. A positive of being on a remote team is that you have to do communication deliberately. Now, there's degrees of doing that well, but just being conscious about communicating and like our executive team is conscious about communicating to us what we're going, how the company is doing, um, how each of our pieces of work fits into our plans for the next months and, and year. And that's helpful. Um, and then at the other end, you have daily stand-up where you get little random bits of information about what people are doing. And then there's Slack, which some people actually read all of, but I, I at least get random bits of information. <laughs> um, and then and then there's the external communication too, which also that happens like on Twitter and um, through the community. So the positive is that you need to be deliberate about it, and uh, people are uh, at, at actively pushing that sense of purpose down. Um, but you you have to do that. So it's my job to take initiative to go fetch the information that I need to bug people to set up Zoom meetings. Um, and in the end, if I know I don't know something, 
then it's my job to go find out. If someone else knows that I don't know something, then they can tell me, but why would they know? I, uh, uh, so, so I do feel like I have to be really proactive and that can be like emotionally exhausting. Like who wants to chase people down when I could just <laughs> write some more code? That would be more fun, but it's always worthwhile. Uh, so, so I have to remind myself that like what I want to do and what will make me happy are very different things. Actually, this might be relevant, but uh, I ask everybody that I talk to to share something they're bad at. And the primary reason for that is to to show that the people I'm talking to, even though they might have had very successful careers or they're people that are on stages frequently are still humans and they still have like struggles. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Life is psychologically difficult for everyone. So to illustrate that, what's what's something that you consider yourself to be bad at? Gosh, so I want to help with the Atomist documentation because I think it's the most important thing I could do. But when I look at it and I look at like what it, what it, what I could add to it, I just get overwhelmed and I can't even start. I, I just, I can't even start. I don't know. Ah, whenever I look at it, I, I just get like this, this like block in my head of of everything that I need to do, well, I need to change eight other things first. And I can't get anywhere. So I go find something else useful to do. <laughs> but but I'm frustrated with that uh, because I do think that the documentation is the most important thing I could improve right now. Mm-hmm. It's there, but I want to make it better. Um, and I, I yeah, I, and yet, and yet, I don't think anybody should be telling me what to do in the documentation because uh, as like the closest thing we have to developer relations, um, I'm the one who should know. And I do know. I just know too much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's something I, I feel particularly bad at on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. right now. So that, that sounds like something that you're actively dealing with. But uh, if you have kind of an attack plan for that, how do you how do you deal with that? What's uh, what's your strategy for finding a way around that right now? Find one useful thing to do and just do it. Don't try to find the most useful thing because that's really hard to determine. Find a useful thing and do that. And and then hopefully like a customer will ask me a question or something. And then I'll be like, aha, that is the next useful thing I will do. Uh, and, and also, like, if I ask for someone else's perspective, chances are I'll disagree with them, but I'll disagree with them in some way that's actionable. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it, just someone else being wrong is helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Out of curiosity, and again, this is a, a question I ask pretty much everybody. What advice do you find yourself repeating frequently? Oh, I, I have so many little little mantras. Yeah, you might you might have like... I don't know, a few blog posts people could read. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've I've started I've started publishing little bitty blog posts and also a newsletter. The newsletter is like um the same as a blog post, except I add little reflections about how I reached these conclusions and maybe some nuance because I try to be opinionated in the blog. Um but but yeah, I do have a lot of things. I say this is fine a lot and just 
You got to pick what you get upset about. It's fine. Anybody is rude on Twitter. I mean, not (laughs) that I I don't have any problems on Twitter. I have a great experience with Twitter. Uh, The people who follow and respond to me are awesome. Um, But yeah, somebody's wrong on the internet. This is fine. Um, (laughs) um, I do see like a trend of prioritization being something that you deal with a lot. Do you have any mm. ideas around how people should prioritize uh, not just like the tasks they need to get done, but the things they de- they devote their attention to throughout the day? You know, one thing that's important is we don't achieve goals directly. If you if you aim for some some end and are willing to take any means to get there, you're probably not going to get there. And if you do, you'll regret it. Um, we need to build a system that produces the outcomes we want. Uh, sometimes it's building a system that lets us build a system that lets us build a system that, that makes the world better. Um, you, it, it matters that you enjoy the process, that the process of getting there has some intrinsic value. Like for me, blogging has intrinsic value. I wanted to, I wanted to start writing more and I experimented until I found a format that is short enough that I don't dread doing it. It's just like these little one to two minute uh, segments. And also when I publish it to the newsletter, that only goes to a few people and they respond and then I get gratified. So I found a system that results in writing, but that I can enjoy the process of. And it's similar with uh, with CSS. I've been I've been hating working on this website because it's so frustrating. But now that I've I've incorporated like really learning how it works, suddenly it's exciting because I'm able to do things on purpose, and 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 it feels good, and I'm improving myself. I'm I'm becoming someone who can make a web page eventually. Not a good web page, <laughs> but a web page that at least um, people can use on their desktop if they only use Chrome and speak <laughs> English. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to solve the world here. <laughs> so, um, outside of development, how do you how do you build a system for yourself that produces those kind of results? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I do a fair amount of changing my situation. Um, that's true. That's true. From our marriage is non-traditional. That's been essential, uh, to negotiating travel. I need enough travel, but I also really like spending time with my kids who are awesome. Um, little things like having my own room has made a huge difference and decorating that with art, local art from local artists. I get excited about that. Um, letting myself learn a bunch of random things. Oh, oh, here's a good one. I read a ton of chapter one and I finish very few books. Uh, and this it's, so it's like free to start a book. In fact, it is free to start a book because on Kindle, you can download a sample and chapter one is free. I always read the forward though. I'm always interested in the context of the book and why it exists. So I read the entire sample usually, but but that's it. And then, and there are a few of them I actually buy and read more, but, uh, but that like, I kind of let myself 
do something that feels exciting that day, as long as it's in line with my general um, objectives to to learn fascinating things and put them into newsletters. Yeah, what when 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 you feel trapped, you usually aren't. That that's an important thing to. Um, it's a hard thing to accept uh, because it doesn't let us just sit back and stay where we are. It takes a lot of like bravery. It takes bravery to change your situation, to um, go look for a new relationship or end one that's not doing well, to change your living situation, to change your job. There's a common one that's, it's way harder than we act like it is to actually go out and find a new company and leave the one you're in. Uh, But we do have that power especially as developers right now. And, and, and it's worth it. So I wonder if you have any advice around that specific idea of working for different companies and different kinds of companies and how uh, you go about leaving a job and finding a new job. Mm -hmm. Do you have any general advice around that? Well, If you blog and then tweet, oh, here's the secret to tweeting. Uh, go go to conferences or read other people's blogs. You don't have to go anywhere. You can just read other people's blogs, find the pull quote, tweet that. That's how, that's, that's my Twitter strategy. Um, works really well. But if you do that, and, and if you learn in public, then um, that drastically increases your network in ways that you can't even see. My first cool well, like a second cool job. Uh, my first Scala job, um, the the recruiter uh, called my future boss and said, oh, I've got a candidate for you and she knows Scala. And he was like, is it Jessatron? <laughs> because in St. Louis, female and has any, any Scala association was enough to narrow it to one. <laughs> um, because I've been blogging about Scala. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that is can be huge. Uh, in general, there's benefits to moving jobs every two years, uh, but there's also benefits to staying at the same company for 10 or 15. Not your first company. Get like at least there is another piece of the world under your belt. Also at your first company, you're kind of always new because you were new when you started. And, and to people who were there before you, you'll always be new. Um, and young and junior. Uh, yeah, so not your first company, but but the the people with the most influence who are able to to really um, have an impact on the systems are the ones who understand the political network of the company and who knows who and who knows the history of what and they know the history of some things and which pieces of the system go to bed, go together and who needs to know what um, that. There's a lot, a lot of value in staying at the same place for 10 or 15 years. So even though I've never done that, I, I do. I think it's important that other people do. So personally, how have you uh, taken advantage of working in a lot of different places? Because I know the more places you work at, the more experiences you have to juxtapose and, and pull from and find out what it is you do like and do appreciate. So for you, what have those th- things been and how have those... Uh, helped you as a developer? Uh, I've learned that I don't really care what programming language I work in, but it does matter to focus on one for most of the time. 
Um, I've, I've used a lot of languages a little bit and it got to where I didn't know anything well. And that was a negative. Um, but, but the best programming language to use is the one you already know. Actually, not quite true. The one your team knows because it's not just about you. Um, there's something I say all the time. It's not just about you, Jess. Uh, that's, that's actually ra rather comforting. Um, what I do doesn't matter all that much, so I might as well do something random. We'll be fine. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, I, just because I, I think I relate to it, but how did you go from someone who knew a little about a lot of stuff to someone who feels comfortable with a specific skill set? Mm, I started out with a specific skill set uh, because I did Java for like 10 years. So I was pretty strong on Java and the JVM. And then, and then I, once I started moving around more uh, with jobs and started speaking and writing articles on whatever people wanted an article about, uh, I got scattered. And then currently at Atomist, for the last two years, I've been able to focus on TypeScript. Um, we, we also mm -hmm. have Clojure in our back end, but I figured out going back and forth between the two was too expensive mentally. Um, so now I've been able to focus on one. Unfortunately, the specification for TypeScript references the specification for JavaScript, which is 1,800 pages. So I have not, <laughs> and it's also not up to date, sadly. So I don't feel like I know all of TypeScript by any means, uh, but I have gotten a lot better uh, by focusing that, uh, doing a couple talks on it. Nothing like doing a talk on something to make you learn it like you mean it. Or I should say teaching it, teaching it to a person also counts. Um, yeah. Yeah. So like giving, I, I do some conference-driven development or also blog posts work for this of, okay, this is hard. Damn it. I'm going to figure it out and make it easier for other people. That'll give you a solid mm -hmm. foundation. Do you have a formula or not, not even a formula, but just a methodology for how to how to give a talk when you are still learning? Oh, that's the best time to give a talk. I want to hear talks. Uh, if I don't know something or don't know it well, I want to hear a talk by someone who is learning it actively, not the person who wrote it because they don't know how much they know, and and you forget how to explain stuff once you're an expert in it. Uh, so while you're learning is the best time. Right now, as I go through the CSS spec, I am writing down all the terms that made me say, huh, so that I can define those in a hypothetical future talk about CSS, um, which isn't, yeah, the world needs, because it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's hard for reasons, damn it, not because it's stupid. No, it doesn't need redesigned, actually. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> 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 you just there's a thing. If you think something is stupid, somebody knows something you don't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway. This is kind of a big rewind, but as a speaker, um, when you first started out doing that, how did you work up the confidence to to give your first set of talks? I'm sure that uh, it's it's different for everybody. Some people are just confident out of the gate. Yeah. Some people are just like born to be in front of others. Um but uh, was there was there kind of a, a time period where you had to build up comfort giving talks, or was it something that you just felt good doing? No, nope. oh, it felt good. Yeah, I am. Um, my my grandmother was a drama director at the local college when I was in like middle school, high school. So I would be 
uh, I would help her with rehearsals. I would read the parts that people weren't there for. I had little kitty parts in some of the plays um, and skits that they did. And so like the stage was never a weird place to be. I think that helped a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no, no problems. <laughs> Which is why people people ask me sometimes, oh, you should you should give a, a workshop on how to speak. I'm like, nah, I just get up there. I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so that's actually a kind of a weird place to come from as a developer where there's the the kind of uh, stereotype, right? That people aren't going to, that you aren't going to be as comfortable in front of others, that you're going to be more of an introvert. Yeah, and that your slides are going to be boring. So if you like make, make <laughs> anything entertaining about them, people love them. You, I, I do the worst art and the worse it is, the more people like it. It's great. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm curious. Um, have you had any really weird experiences as a result of being kind of a more outgoing software developer things that you think are unique to you and and have maybe benefited you or made things harder for you well i do think like as a woman i didn't suffer from a lot of the dynamics that most women who are developers do uh i people didn't doubt my confidence because i was just like out there saying stuff and i I will argue with them. Oh, the first company I worked for was an Israeli company. That was a great fit (laughs) because they're very blunt and they just want you to tell it like it is. Um, And they don't want you to beat around the bush and be nice to them. (laughs) They don't need that. Uh, We'll just have mutual respect. And that's, I totally got along with that. Now I've never got, in the past, it's better now, but. Um, I didn't get along with other women for that same reason. Um, so that was, while it was sometimes a disadvantage in my personal life, it totally helped it work. Hmm. Um, and, and so I, yeah, I just haven't suffered from, uh, the kind of, the, the kind of, um, disregard assumption of beginnerhood and incompetence, that other women are subjected to when they're just like normal. Mm-hmm. So I'm completely unqualified to comment on that, but um, I'm, I'm curious if you have maybe not advice, but just generally, uh, you know, any wisdom that can, can help people who are in that situation or people who might unwittingly be causing that kind of dynamic. How, how do people, how, how should you deal with that? Oh, so I definitely have advice for the people who, for for developers who work with um, women who are developers. Uh, there's lots of things that the men can do in that situation. One, do not interrupt. Everyone, including me, interrupts women more than men, uh, and you have to like actively fight that. Um, and two, don't let other people interrupt. <laughs> Because if I fuss about being interrupted, that's rude. But if you tell someone not to interrupt me, that's not rude. That's helpful. And and you look good, and I get less interrupted, and um, and 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 it doesn't seem obnoxious. Uh, I think what what we need is a lot of people saying, "Not cool, dude," 
<laughs> in the in the cases where because you, you don't do it on purpose, it's just part of our culture. It's not your fault. You were born into this culture, but it is something that we can consciously compensate for. Mm-hmm. Give women the opportunity to teach and give the presentation. Um, that 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 often like kind of defaults to men. Don't assume they're beginners. Really, really don't assume they're at this conference because they're with their husband. And the other thing is like, there's this stupid thing where, um, at a conference, it's, it, the the word stupid applies oddly. Uh, I'll, I'll get to that. Like if I, if a woman shows up at a user group, um, or a conference as a developer, she's probably one woman in 20 men generously, um, And the reason that you should never ask her out is because if people ask people out, and most of us at the conferences, the majority are also heterosexual, uh, then that woman will get asked out five times and the men won't get asked out at all. And and therefore the men don't see it's a problem. But because of the concentration of the gender minority, it becomes a problem. It's not a problem I've had, but I observed that other women um, get this experience because like that one cute girl at the conference, no, she's not there to be dating. And if you flirt with her, so do 50 other guys out of the thousand at that conference. Just don't. Just don't. But do ask her questions about her job. Yeah, that seems completely uh, impossible to relate to from my perspective, but also extremely annoying. Yeah, and it's nobody fault. That's what the gender dynamics are. And then it's a circular causality of it becomes worse. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of curious, um, based on that, uh, as a woman who is someone with significant seniority uh, in the engineering discipline, uh, or have you dealt with that in, in recent history at work, out, just outside of conferences and that, that kind of situation? Um, and do you have advice to people who to other women who are senior engineers that are, are dealing with that kind of thing? Uh, I, I, I haven't had any problems. I've had a great experience in this industry. I've had great experiences at conferences and great experiences at user groups, meetups, meetups. Welcome to this decade, Jess. Um, and, <laughs> and, and great experiences at work. I mean, I've only worked with, there was one asshole architect who like clearly hated me extra uh, for being a woman, but he was an asshole to everybody. Just like I've just got a little extra. But but really, uh, overall, I think um, as a speaker, it's easy to stand out. Um, I haven't had that problem. Um, advice I would give is uh, seek out if you're a senior engineer and a woman. We are a small minority, and the fun part of that is that it's really fun to talk to each other because we don't get to every day. And, and as, at conferences, um, there, it's easy to talk to the other women speakers because we're all kind of uh, looking for reinforcement and role models. Um, and it just, it feels good. So that makes me happy. I'm like more comfortable talking uh, to women engineers as I get more senior and as, as the minority gets smaller. So take advantage of that. Uh, it, when you, when you do find another woman, you know, have a conversation, 
it's uh, it feels really good. Awesome. Well, Jessica, I really appreciate your time. Um, before we say goodbye, is there a good place for people to go learn more about you? Oh, sure. I'm at Jessitron on Twitter. <laughs> I've got jessitron.com, although I haven't redone my website post my CSS uh, investigations. So it's very much out there demonstrating that I'm a backend developer. This is fine. <laughs> There's blog.jessitron.com and newsletter.jessitron.com. Oh, uh, but on Twitch, I'm Jessitronica. And, and because I work on open source software, I can stream during work hours, which is fun. Well, again, I, I really appreciate your time and, and your willingness to share your experiences. Thank you. Thanks for listening to devpath.fm. Want to ask a question? Send an email to jacob at devpath.fm.